Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year. It's a podcast where we normally, every week, quote unquote, uh, uh, watch a year of movies. Uh, one episode, one year is what we yeah, should call yeah, it. But yeah. this episode is not that. This episode is where we're having a good old time. We're talking about the last 10 years of movies, the 1910s. 1910s in review. I am one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a projectionist at the Denver Film Society. And standing to my uh, left on my Zoom window is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm the other co-host, and I am a filmmaker at my house. <laughs> yes including like yeah you're doing doing editing stuff at your house too true w- i do everything from my house now the wfh life yeah exactly so glenn good to talk to you good to yeah. good to see you again glad we're getting getting back into this getting back on our roll i changed my angle what do you think it looks nice you can really see your your very impressive collection of blu-rays and uh and video film, games film stuff video games all all those goodies vhs tapes there are some um, tapes in there color map thing from i forget what movie that's from but it's 2001 it is 2001 i thought it was but i didn't want to say if i was wrong um yeah it's nice to be doing this nice to and sort of sort of uh you know review the things that we watched months and months and months ago <laughs> Yes, getting close to years ago, which is disgusting. Yeah. Um, but I think that now that our lives are a bit, or that that my life is a little bit more stable and and I'm on top of my my shit a little more, <laughs> then uh, uh, you know we can we can get going again. But uh, how, how's it going? How are you doing? Pretty good, you know, just uh, trucking along. I uh, yeah, I just uh, finished running the Denver Film Festival as a tech lead at the C Film Center. I'm um, applauding, but I'm doing it really quietly so it doesn't mess up the audio. Yeah, that would be bad. I've only worked at a film festival. I have not, like, uh, kind of run a department and everything like that. I was mm. involved in all of these, like, planning meetings that I didn't really have too much to do with. Uh, but uh, it was great. It was awesome. And uh, the the other projectionists killed it, and... Uh, it was a super smooth show. None, right. no, no canceled anything. Apparently, that has happened at least like once or twice. Like shows have gotten messed up in previous years. So, mm-hmm. yay, you know, good stuff. It was, uh, it was very busy, but it was a fun time. Awesome. I did not get in, but uh, I'm glad that it went well. I'm sorry, I couldn't nepotism you into there. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't want, I don't want, you know, I don't want charity. Like, I, I would have, I would have loved uh, a, a good excuse to, to fly back to Denver to go to that. Um, but since I wasn't invited, I didn't do that. It's okay. You're, uh, you're in the shorts program in, in my heart, and there you go. Uh, where it matters. Yeah, something, something that I'm working on making happen is, uh, having shorts screen before features at our theater mm. it's something that i really want to try and do so i'll i'll hit you up if uh yeah that'd be if, super cool if that if that ends up happening anyway we're here to talk about the 1910s and talk about the movies we watched from the 1910s and then we also watched a couple of movies uh about the 1910s specifically like the film industry yeah 
Uh, Which you... is not, I feel like, not a super heavily, like, covered period of time in film history in terms of, like, its portrayal in other movies. I mean, it's it's not it's not covered in other movies so much, but it's also like, at least as far as film history, people don't really talk about it that much. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I will say that I think it's a, like a little less thrilling than the 19 aughts and yeah. maybe a little less masterful than the 1920s. So it seems like a lot of stuff that people talk about silent film wise is like Edison and Melies, and then they skip to yeah. Met- Metropolis or something. Like Which that. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but at the same time, it's like, there's so much good stuff here and so many like interesting developments and things like that that i mean this is the reason we're doing this show right it's yeah you're you're watching it year by year yeah you're watching uh people collectively develop the language for uh feature film which is the thing that like we saw develop in this last decade uh the the earliest feature films were before this but just barely um Mm -hmm. and what we saw was people kind of stumbling to uh make the feature film a really concise and 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 well-paced thing and i think that like as we got toward the end of the decade we saw a lot of feature films that used their time really well that were cut in really um in really engaging ways uh in in ways that you would consider to be more modern maybe Mm -hmm. yeah and just more entertaining they kind of figured out that like oh yeah like Things don't always have to take place in real time. We yeah. can maybe we can maybe cut some of the, you know, some of the the, the fluff out of here and just kind of, and it's it kind of control pacing and that kind of thing too. It's really interesting to see that stuff. Yeah. Do you have uh, any other uh, thoughts on the the decade itself before we get into um, it? Um. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it it a lot of my thoughts about it are things about how like. It is this kind of weird transitional period of time between, like, film being invented and kind of the explosion of, like, creativity around that. And then this is sort of where a lot of the maybe less sort of glamorous uh, development happens of just, like, kind of meat and potatoes. Like, how do we actually tell stories in this medium? And then I think the 20s is going to be the, like, oh, okay, now they have, like, they're really starting to figure it out now. And then right at the end of that, they're like, oh, wait, we're doing sound now. Oh, shit. Now we don't know how to do anything anymore. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that happen, too. I wonder, right? Like, is is uh, adjusting to something that's, like, formally different, like, um, the from 30-second movies to five-minute movies, from five-minute movies to 15, and from 15 to feature length, like, these are things where people had to, like, experiment with what formally worked Mm -hmm. as far as like editing and that kind of thing and i wonder like how once we get into talkies at the beginning of or at the end of this next decade uh how much of that will seem kind of natural like oh you put talking in you know people talk right or like i wonder if people will stumble with that as well you know i'm not sure Mm. i haven't really ever seen any movies from like the late 20s i guess I've seen a couple. I mean, yeah, I've seen like uh, Hell's Angels, which is the the Howard Hughes movie that he, I guess, sort of infamously like halfway through was like, we're doing sound now. <laughs> we're going to redo a bunch of stuff. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I've like and I've I like read or heard stories about sort of the early kind of growing pains of early sound films, but I haven't yeah I haven't seen a lot of like of movies between yeah like nineteen twenty seven and like nineteen like early thirties like thirty two thirty three. So um, that'll be interesting to see. But we're not there yet. We're not there we yet. Got, we got time. We're talking about what we already did, not talking about what we're about to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know. Should we go? Do you want to start with the movies that we watched for this episode, or should we go through our top ten? Let's start with the movies. But first, before I forget again, because I've meant to break this out a couple times, and this is just for the video oh. viewers here, I've got uh, which I've got this uh, Francis Ford Coppola director's cut wine that i thought i would take out for this occasion i was at the liquor store and i saw francis ford coppola's name and i was like whoa what and then i realized that it's an extremely normal and known thing that he makes wine but i was gobsmacked uh but it's pretty cool um if you're listening to the podcast sorry but if you're on youtube uh it's got like a zoetrope kind of thing written uh scrolling all the way across uh the bottle an american zoetrope you might even say an american zoetrope what's the name of his production company oh i didn't know that (laughs) (laughs) it says this graphic band is a replica of a 19th century original used in a device called a zoetrope uh which produced the illusion of a moving picture from static ones this signature sonoma wine pays homage to the film the history of filmmaking and to the uncompromising standards necessary to make great films and great wine. <laughs> <laughs> so we can kind of cut around this as I open this up, but uh, I'm 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 jealous now. I I wish I had remembered that you were gonna do this, and I had gone out and bought my own bottle of Coppola wine. But we should we should make it a tradition for every wrap up episode. Yeah, we get a, a nice a nice bottle of Coppola wine. With some film history written on the label. We'll, we'll get a couple of bottles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. No way that no one's made that joke before. <laughs> ah. So satisfying. All right. Now that I'm a little liquored up, uh, why don't we talk about one of our movies? Is there anyone that you, that you feel an urge to talk about most dearly? I guess there's the one that we both watched today. Maybe we should start with that one. Sure. Since it's probably freshest it's nice in our and memories. Fresh. I, love yeah. to, I love to watch movies for this podcast fresh. As in, cram them in right before we record. So the, the opposite of what I do, which is I watch them immediately after recording. And then <laughs> I wait. <laughs> and forget things about them. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, so let's talk about Pearl. Uh, the most the newest by far movie that we have ever spoken of yeah i mean several months old yeah we're actually we're actually trying to be topical i guess in this case of like a movie that other people have seen yeah yeah right i mean oh well people have seen a birth of a nation unfortunately but yeah uh well we'll see if it's on anybody's top 10 (laughs) uh yeah i don't know uh slight spoilers for later in this episode didn't make the list yeah pearl i uh i thought it was really really good I, me too i uh have not have you seen x no i have not the only other ty west movie i've seen is um house of the devil which Same. shares a name with a melies movie true uh, yeah <laughs> really tying it together now yeah right 
Um, um, so wait, so you did not see X either? No, no, I meant. Oh, to. interesting. Yeah. The uh, our theater uh, was doing uh, was doing some screenings of X. Well, we played X when it came out like earlier mm-hmm. this year in like March or something like that. And uh, we did some repeat screenings of X when Pearl came out, and I meant to, but did not. And I meant to see Pearl in theaters, but I did not. Yeah, I mean, I meant to see Pearl this past week. It was screening at the Roxy Hotel Cinema on 35mm, and I got on the train platform to go see it. And then it was like, the next train is in like 40 minutes. And I was like, well, sorry, Ty, but uh, I'm not waiting 40 minutes for the train because it wow. was already it was already like 10:30 at night so i was Jeez. like um yeah so thanks mta you ruined it um but i watched it today uh and thoroughly enjoyed it yeah uh i don't know like how much we want to like we feel like we need to like tie it in you know if we just talk about pearl or if we're like that ah, involves I mean, I think old it, movies it just in i mean by its very nature i think it ties into a lot of things that we've talked about on the show and it is like about a very specific period of time 1918 1918 i think it was funny that this was made during a pandemic and it reflects the the previous one i mean 100 years ago certainly intentional 100 percent, yeah but it was like i think this is one of the only movies that is like a movie made during the current pandemic that is like partially about that that doesn't feel insufferable. Right. Where it just, it feels like a natural, it just feels like a natural thing that it's like. Yeah. This movie also, I also don't think if I hadn't known that it was made, you know, like however many months ago, like a year ago, I think, I don't think I necessarily would have guessed that it was like, you know, made in the, in the manner that it was. Right. But it's also like, um, it's also a movie that, that like, if, you tell me it came it's a pandemic movie it kind of makes sense in a way because it's yeah. like a, a s- small number of s- scenes or sets i guess yeah and yeah. uh and it does have people wearing masks in it and stuff yeah but it like it ties in great because yeah. it's uh, 1918 yeah. um and yeah it's like not not a huge cast very limited sort of number of locations um but it never feels sort of constrained by that i didn't think um yeah no definitely yeah i think it's like a really tight movie it's um i thought that the character work in it was like fantastic so i guess we should describe a bit for people who don't know pearl is a movie that came out this year uh uh, directed by ty west uh written by ty west and mia goth who plays the lead character the titular character in pearl Mm -hmm. um and yeah set in 1918 uh on a farm in texas and it's about uh a young woman named pearl who who is obsessed with the pictures and wants to be a star yeah um and and uh things do not go well (laughs) it's a horror film it is although it is there horrific things happen in it but i think it it doesn't necessarily it goes for for quality over quantity there's not like a lot of not a lot of like kills or gore in this movie but when they happen it's like oh boy here yeah. we go i i i honestly like i am really interested to see x now uh now that i've watched its prequel uh mm. cuz like x seems like i guess x is made so pearl is made in the model of 
these kind of classic Technicolor movies, which is not quite the era that it is set in, um, but uh, it's it's sort of meant to look like Wizard of Oz and all this other kind of stuff. And um, yeah, it has a very Technicolor kind of old fashioned, much more of a yeah kind of like not even it reminded me more in terms of its visual style of like films from like the late 50s because mm-hmm. um, it's also shot anamorphic so it's widescreen it's like very colorful very saturated very bright yeah and um, and i guess x is meant to be this kind of like grungier like texas chainsaw kind of uh pastiche um yeah. so i heard an interesting thing in in reading about pearl today of how so this was shot back to back with x mm-hmm. um at the same time there's kind of a funny quote from ty west about that which is uh so this was made during like the height of covid pandemic stuff where it was like it was very difficult to shoot anything um and so this movie even though it's shot it takes place entirely on a farm in texas that x also takes place on it was shot entirely in new zealand which mm. is not close to Texas because New Zealand was one of the only countries that had any sort of film production happening. Wow. Um, because they were so isolated and locked off, they could sort of like quarantine people there. New Zealand um, was, was doing really well with the pandemic for sure. Yeah. But because of that, um, a lot of crew people from uh, Avatar 2 worked on these movies because they were on break. <laughs> from between avatar movies and they were there in new zealand so ty west was able to to bring them over did they film a lot of avatar 2 in new zealand yeah they shot uh all of it in new zealand i'm pretty sure oh hmm. possibly wow. new zealand and, and australia but um i wonder if we'll see any hobbits show up in the uh way, maybe what's Who it can called say? way of the water or something the way of water, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm very excited for Avatar too. I, I don't know about anyone else. I I think I'm just excited to look James Cameron doing water stuff. It's possible there's a serpentine dance in the movie. <laughs> Who's to say? But uh I think this movie wasn't even initially planned. Uh the quote from Ty West is uh we're already building all this stuff. It's COVID and we're the one place we're in the one place on earth where it's safe to make a movie. We have the whole crew from Avatar 2 who's on break. We should make two movies. And they did. And I love That's that awesome. mentality. I yeah. love that he was like, we are, we're, all, we're all here already. Like, let's just make another movie while we're here. I Honestly, like, I, I'm sure X is good. And I'm, I'm very interested to see it. But I can't imagine that it's better than this movie. Because I thought this movie was, like, fantastic. I Yeah. It, I, it, it did also kind of take me by surprise at how good it was. Not that I was, like, expecting it to be bad. But I think just it was, it um I don't know it was it was less pastiche, and kind of more uh and less kind of lurid I guess than I was maybe expecting it to be. Yeah, it was like a really just like disturbing character drama, um yeah, which yeah. is wild that it was just like written like really quick and then shot like, like oh yeah let's shoot it now you know. <laughs> yeah, but oh that's like I I love when that type of thing happens when it's just like i have an idea let's 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 go outside and do it's it right jazz. now jazz it's <laughs> yeah hey you know i'm sure i'm sure damien chazelle would would agree with you there i'm sure he'd be like it's so much like jazz Every, everything in life is is just jazz damien chazelle noted noted lover of old cinema 
Uh, Indeed. <laughs> which... Well, maybe. Um, oh. I mean, it, maybe we'll we'll watch it for uh, uh, the next decades thing. But there is, I think, a lot of notable stuff in his new movie, Babylon. Um, which, which I got to see early because yeah Glenn's a Glenn's a fancy New York City boy because <laughs> I'm a special boy um, <laughs> um, but you haven't seen that so I don't talk but I guess in in relation to like what makes it so relevant to like why we watched it for the podcast is like I guess Pearl is obsessed with like show business mm-hmm. and that is reflective I think of like uh the mentality of sort of like fame and stardom that was sort of shifting during the 1910s, like movie stars weren't really a thing until the 1910s. And then all of a sudden they were, and people were like intensely, I mean, they still are, but like people were so intensely like obsessed and in love with people they, they saw on screen. Um, Which we see represented in um, getting ahead of myself a little bit, but we see that represented in one of the other movies that we watched Nickelodeon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was also funny seeing sort of like the corollaries between this and Nickelodeon of yeah. like, they are both about a, a very similar time in history of sort of like filmmaking going, going from being, I guess, a slightly more of a niche thing to being this like incredibly populist, uh, thing that like, y- you know, you couldn't go to see the opera if you were just an average person living in the 1910s, but like most people could go to a Nickelodeon pay a nickel and see a bunch of shorts um pay a nickel they'll sit in that odeon and they'll watch exactly watch a mary pickford (laughs) there you go um and so i thought that was like uh uh, one thing about setting this movie in 1919 that felt very smart that it 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 uses the like very specific period of time in history to sort of underline a lot of the things it's it's trying to say yeah and Um, i loved like the depiction of the the movie theater in in this movie as a projectionist i hope that i'm not as like skeezy as the the guy the the projectionist in this movie (laughs) but uh uh you know once i saw that it was like set in 1918 and there's a projectionist in it i was like okay we gotta watch this you know yeah Uh, you're saying you don't like hang out at the back door of the movie theater and be like hey lady you want to see a projection room (laughs) I mean, I am willing to show anybody the projection room if they're curious, and I have snipped off little bits of of junk film, of junk film. But I've snipped off little bits of film to to give to people uh, who, who have had their eyes wide about showbiz yeah. Hollywood. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's funny how it 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 does almost seem like a cliche of like filmmakers portraying the experience of going to the movies as this like magical thing and like the projector beam is shining behind their yeah. head and that their their eyes are wide and it's like i have felt that way in a movie theater sometimes it does it is very like like transcendently joyous experience mm-hmm. um but i i like how this movie and i feel like a lot of movies that i've watched i feel like there have been a lot of movies that have been released in the past year that are sort of about the experience of going to the movies mm-hmm. um probably because it that experience didn't exist for like a year and a half, a year and change. It gave people time to re-examine what it was, yeah. maybe. Um, and I like how this movie sort of like shows that, but it has this sort of like dark edge to it of like, yeah, it's great, but also you know, some people might take it a little too far. Right, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's like a kind of classic Hollywood story 
for somebody to be ruined by their dreams of Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, I think that, like, this is interesting and that, you know, kind of spoilers for the movie. We don't really usually talk about that, but this is a pretty new movie. So uh, yeah. light yeah. spoilers, I guess, in, in that, like, you know, she does not get to Hollywood. Like, it's it's all in this one small town, and she is just looking at what's on screen and dreaming about what uh what there could be what hollywood means and her like um her like viewpoint her like lens into this world is this kind of skis ball projectionist you know he like sells her on this dream and and pearl in the movie is someone who needs the escapism of hollywood and she like really is like succumbs to this false image in a way but it's it's so mm-hmm. false that she hasn't even seen a glimmer of it she just watches the movies and wants to be in them and thinks that like uh, a kind of within one you know a, a texan dancing routine that it travels around yeah. the state is going to be like her ticket into hollywood <laughs> which i mean is is like a lot of that did happen to be like some people were just sort of like plucked out of obscurity and now they're like they're in they're in the pictures now yeah. everyone everyone sees their face and that is a i think a very like the fact that that is not like the few people that did get famous uh early on were often people who you know they weren't coming from necessarily the theater or their places they were sort of, sort of like overnight success you know so right. it's like the the um i think that adds even more to that thing of just like oh that could be me i could be up there i mean like you said there's a lot of great character stuff she is like, amazing in this movie mia yeah. goth mia goth is in like every frame of this thing pretty much and co-wrote it mm-hmm. mia goth who has a, a name for horror movies and as far as i know hasn't really worked outside of horror a lot I think the only other things I've seen her in have all been horror movies. But hey, she's very good at it. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keep knocking no, another park. But I don't think this is just a good like horror performance. Like like that. There, there's like a monologue toward the end of the movie that is like, oh, this is like best yeah. best actress yeah. stuff. You know. So that I love that monologue a lot. Like it's it 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 is a great piece of acting but uh, the one thing that i thought of during it that i think is one thing that really kind of like made it stand out to me is so she has a monologue where she's sitting at a table talking to her sister-in-law and her her sister-in-law is like pearl is very upset at this point she's done a lot of very terrible things and her sister-in-law is there and she's like tell like hey just you can talk to me you can tell me anything like i'm here i'm supporting you like um, and I feel like that this scene is what both people, if you've ever been in that situation on either end of it, I feel like this is what both people are always afraid will happen, which is when someone says, you can talk to me, you can open up, your immediate thing is like, well, what if I do? And then you're, you don't like what you hear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's also when you say that to someone else, that's sort of like, tell me anything. You're like, uh-oh, but like, are they going to say something that is like, not good and that's what happens in this scene um and it's just sort of like this is like worst case scenario <laughs> of someone <laughs> opening up to another person where that other person does not accept them does not listen to them is terrified by what they hear 
And then, so then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go well from there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love that scene. One particular, like uh, most of the monologue is done in a single unbroken take, which is like, you know, I don't care if it's gimmicky to do that. It works well. Okay. Like sometimes it's better just to let. It's a showcase for, yeah. Yeah. For an, like a really amazing performance. I mean, I noticed that the camera wasn't cutting, but like. I don't know. It would have felt like, I, I mean, it, it, it let me see how impressive what she was was doing. Yeah. It's it's very unobtrusive filmmaking. It's just sort of like, here you go. Yeah. Well, it also like um, increased the tension too, because you're not like yeah. seeing the response. Yeah. Uh, because cut, cutting relieves tension. So hmm. that also, it lets that build threat. Um, there's another movie from this year that is also a sort of unconventional horror movie called Resurrection. In which uh, Rebecca Hall also has a like long, unbroken single take monologue that I, I believe is longer than this one. That one's like really, really long, um, and is also just this like incredible tour de force piece of acting that you're just like Jesus, like what did I just watch? Um, that movie's really good if you haven't seen it. Um, if if anyone listening likes, uh, you know, upsetting movies. <laughs> watch resurrection that'll that'll get you i'm not familiar with that one it's very good yeah it was a small release this year but i'm i'm championing it now there are a lot of great details i think about the way that like pearl interacts with the the world around her she is most of her clothes are hand-me-downs from her her uh german immigrant parents and so i feel like even even though it's a period film that takes place a long time ago, it's like her clothes definitely stand out still as like old fashioned compared to most other people in the movie. Um, there's a lot of Wizard of Oz stuff in this movie, and I'm not entirely sure what the uh, the overall like symbolism of that was, but I definitely picked up on a lot of like Wizard of Oz stuff. I feel like at various points, Pearl is sort of compared visually to both Dorothy and the Wicked Witch, which is kind of interesting. Huh. Interesting. There's a a scarecrow. There's an axe, which I guess is like the Tin Man's signature weapon. Ah, signature weapon. (laughs) I forget when Wizard of Oz was written, but there was an an adaptation of it in the 1910s that we watched. There's all the uh, animals on the farm are named after sort of era-appropriate actors. That's right. Yeah, I wasn't. Um, catch- I didn't an, catch all of them, but yeah, yeah, including an alligator that isn't really a farm animal, but it's is there. <laughs> an alligator named Theta for Theta Barra, and there's a cow yeah. named Mary for I assume Mary Pickford. There's a great line during that monologue where Pearl says, "Life terrifies me," and I was like, "Oh, that's a good, that's a good line." <laughs> big, big mood. Um, <laughs> one of the actors in this, I met one time i don't know if this is necessary this isn't really a good story but it just is notable that uh uh, a friend of mine worked on a film with matthew sunderland who plays pearl's dad in this movie anyway matthew sunderland is a new zealand actor makes sense why he would be in this movie oh okay and um, since he's from new zealand and he's got a new zealand accent i guess he doesn't have to speak i mean he could probably do a texan accent but um (laughs) i don't know shout out to matthew sunderland I don't know, any other shot on film it looks great yeah i mean good and movie 
a lot of um a lot of just film details in it projector details uh i thought yeah, the, I was... um, the projectionist threading up the the projector was kind of well done uh although mm-hmm. it was it was very strange to me that there was music that seemed almost synchronized uh that was being played with the uh with the movies that they were watching on screen i wasn't well, like yeah, you start you start the record and you start the projector roughly the same time well, maybe yeah, that's what, what was happening yeah but like there was another thing that had like um i don't know like music that was like yeah i guess it would have been on a record if that's what they were doing they were playing a record mm-hmm. and and then had dancing that was roughly uh, uh right. synchronized to it which on, on the screen. might be a bit of artistic license of just like it felt the music more like is a, less janky than yeah it would maybe have in real one life. guy on a piano yeah, yeah. like it, it um visually and maybe just historically it was kind of mixing a bit of like 1930s 1940s with mm-hmm. uh 1918 yeah. uh, like it was very much like set in 1918 but there were a couple of details like the technicolor and the um maybe the way that the films were presented in the movie that felt a little mm-hmm. a little newer than that yeah yeah the uh the the stag film that the the skeezy projectionist shows is a real film from oh really around around 1915 it's oh i didn't of, know that at least from wikipedia it's sort of unclear people don't really know when it was made hmm. um but yeah that is a real and is sort of like I, I, again according to wikipedia it's sort of probably the earliest surviving like pornographic movie that we've talked about ones that are older than that i think i mean i i think in the sense that it, this one is like the most hardcore i guess right uh, yeah, i guess in, so. in, the, in the technical sense yeah um because i think the the stuff that we had talked about was more sort of like erotica it was like yeah nudity and like dancing and things whereas this is just mm-hmm. like oh okay there they go <laughs> right true because i i was wondering that watching the movie if that was something if that was an actual period correct film or not and it is that's interesting yeah i was wondering if like that was something that they made themselves in that Mm -hmm. style uh but i I guess not unless you have anything else to say about pearl um i i did notice during the projection the threading the projector bit that it's like in 1918 i guess projectors were far enough along like the technology didn't really change until what like the 2010s when they switched to digital projectors like uh the sort of two real system and it like it threads through and there's a light bulb behind it i guess there's sort of like the the external shutter uh yeah in this projector which Mm -hmm. i thought was a a cool little they were definitely using like an era appropriate projector which you can source from places and still run and everything Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah that was that was a really cool detail um i would uh we're at, at Denver Film, we're about to possibly get donated a uh, 1910s projector. Uh, that, I don't know if it functions, but like it's you know just as like a decorative piece or something like that, and it'll be really cool to just kind of see how all the gears turn and everything like that. Yeah, I am curious how much of like the underlying technology has actually changed because it, it seems like they keep it a, 35 a sort of... millimeters wide. They keep it. Yeah. Uh, they keep the aspect ratio the same, you know, within the same frame at least, uh, yeah. at least until they add sound. Uh, there's a lot about projectors that have just been kind of refined into streamlined machines rather than uh, change too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we move on to the next 
new new-ish newer movie about old movies yeah 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 <laughs> what are you talking about one that's 30 years old or one that's uh like 50 years old or 40 50, uh the 50. the old the old old one okay nickelodeon nickelodeon, nickelodeon. yeah uh, a kind of like less lesser known Peter Bogdanovich movie, I think, mm-hmm. uh, but still starring the uh, fantastic um, pair of uh, the O'Neills. Um, what's her What's her name? The kid. She's so good. Is she in other Bogdanovich movies? She is. Yeah. Have you seen Paper oh, okay. Moon? I've not seen Paper Moon. So she is. She is amazing in that movie. Uh, and and uh, so the main guy in this, uh, God, I'm forgetting his name. Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill. So they've got Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill. Uh, and they're a father-daughter acting team. And they were in Paper Moon, which uh, Bogdanovich made like three years earlier. Mm-hmm. And is an amazing, an amazing movie. Like, uh, it's really... It's a really great movie, like set in the 1930s, about like a kind of con artist guy who, uh, has sort of this adoptive relationship with this little girl who they become like con artist buddies, basically. Um, Sold. Yes, <laughs> 1930s con artists. Um, and this has uh, that same pair as well as Burt Reynolds in mm-hmm. this. Um, and it's a movie about like film production yeah. in the 1910s. Very, very uh, relevant. Yeah, very, very much relevant. I, uh, uh, I don't, I don't remember where. Like somebody told me, like, oh, if you're doing this, you've got to watch the movie Nickelodeon, or like this is something that you've got to pay attention to. And like, I think this and the next movie we're talking about, like, not a lot of people talk about these movies. They're they're mm-hmm. definitely like under the radar in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the thing? Like it, it it's reflective of the period of actual film history that it's like, even the things about it are kind of lesser known. Yeah. The only real stuff like that people make about this era is world war one pictures. Yeah. Quick tangent. Uh, did I tell you that I am very likely uh, related to a con artist from the 1930s? What? <laughs> yeah. My, this I is, this makes great, so much sense. <laughs> my great uncle or great, great uncle uh went to jail in 1940 for extortion in new york at in sing sing um and he had he had aliases he, he went to jail many times throughout his life and under like different names i know very i don't really know much else besides that but um i i i would like to know more because that is a crazy story that's wild oh my god yeah is he still alive no Probably not <laughs> He's a con artist in the 30s. He, he's, he's not around anymore. <laughs> uh, but he did, he did. He worked for a director in at some point in the 1930s also, which I think is kind of nuts. Wow. Hmm. So he was at least tangentially involved in filmmaking also. Well, speaking of people that are tangentially involved in filmmaking, like this, this is about <laughs> like a, uh, I love my segues, huh? Uh, this is uh, about a lawyer who just kind of like happens his way into Hollywood. Uh, yeah. which I feel like is another kind of classic story. Um, yeah. But uh, I also think it wasn't even that uncommon at the time that like people from other trades or like jobs would just kind of like stumble into this new yeah. emerging industry and be like, I guess I'm doing this now. 
it like wasn't enough of an industry that I think like people were you know it was hard to break in you know it's just like it could yeah. just happen it was a lot of like hey you there on the street you want to be in a movie get over here <laughs> um so uh Ryan O'Neill uh plays uh the kind of main character oh it's like Harrigan um Harrigan although every, everyone keeps misremembering his name so they keep yeah. calling him Halloran or hooligan or whatever there's a lot of um very like screwball-y kind of comedy in this um yeah bogdanovich had just made what's up doc which i haven't seen uh but it's got a lot of kind of like it's a mad 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 world kind of uh comedy in it as as is my understanding and i think there's Mm. some of that going on here especially in the beginning of the movie there's like some real life kind of uh uh chaplain-esque but keaton-esque yeah. like uh slapstick gags yeah. um and even later on in the movie there is a lot of especially early definitely but um yeah there's a there is a lot of 1910s era appropriate comedy yeah uh it's definitely like a loose movie uh, in a lot of ways um it's yeah. uh not super plotty some some people who get into making movies and then they try and make movies and stuff happens and there's some kind of interpersonal drama and that's like that's what it's yeah. about um yeah but it was it was a fun it was a fun old movie what do you think it was a fun movie i i have some i have some some criticisms of it i, do I didn't i didn't well. love it um it's also it's very long not that, that in of itself is a criticism but it's like i don't know i have a, i have a lot more notes for this one which always is usually a bad sign or <laughs> if i'm taking a, if i'm taking a lot of notes during something it's not good um i think we can agree on what the worst thing about this movie is which is that it mm. uh which is that it worships dw griffith <laughs> yeah and it, it was almost the sort of thing where i early on in the movie i thought it was sort of building up to this sort of thing where like they realize that he's like a hack almost no that's but because like throughout movie. the whole movie he's he, he doesn't he doesn't he isn't a character in this um i think he appears very briefly at the end of the movie just sort of like as a figure but um throughout it people are being like oh yeah you know we're all trying to make movies but like oh Gr- that griffith guy he's he's doing the real good ones um Which it, it, like it was i feel like it was like the way that people talked about him at this time you know that was like the probably, understanding yeah. of him was yeah. like like he had already been kind of canonized in film history and all of these like 70s people were probably looking up to him as this groundbreaker you know yeah um but i feel like it uh, i was sort of half expecting it to be building up to this sort of thing where they're like we don't need him or like you know some sort of cathartic thing of like breaking free of his shadow or something and then it was at the end it's like no he's great and i was like well uh, (laughs) i watched birth of a nation and then didn't come away with mixed feelings with intensely mixed feelings i came away going that was no one will ever make a better movie (laughs) yeah um i think that is sort of um somewhat a microcosm of a lot of my problems with this movie is that it sort of it introduces a lot of the kind of inequities and sort of like uglier aspects of early filmmaking Mm. and doesn't really do anything with them it just sort of like oh yeah also they were doing blackface but like we're not gonna unpack any of that and it's just sort of like (laughs) well all right it's like i i get that this movie is trying to be a sort of very sort of light on its feet fun comedy right but like why include blackface if you're trying to be light on your feet right and i mean i guess 
the argument could be made that it's like, well, it was there, but we didn't want to like, you know, bring that. It's like, I don't know. You, if you're going to make a movie about this time and like actually dig into like what it was like, I think, you know, I don't know. There was that, that stuff. I was not the biggest fan of I'm just like, ah, Peter, Peter, you gotta, you gotta say something about this. If you're going to put it in your movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't even begin to sort of reckon with any of that stuff yeah i don't know if this movie like necessarily has a lot on its mind maybe you know it's like an interpersonal love triangle-y kind of character drama like wrapped around a comedy in just Mm -hmm. this kind of like very like loose 70s way i i suppose it's very like set piece heavy there's like really long stretches that are all built around sort of like a big stunt or a big sort of like comic set piece there is one scene that is like a really 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 extended fight scene like with fisticuffs maybe Uh, my favorite part of the movie it made me think of um when i watched they live uh i had not heard of rowdy roddy piper um i didn't know that he was like a wrestling guy i just thought he Mm -hmm. was this was the guy in front of me right and i'm watching they live and i'm like how long is this fight scene gonna go on (laughs) Maybe one of the best fight scenes in in film is the They Live fight scene. It's yeah. I, I was I like love... I was like, this feels so pointless. I don't understand what's happening here. Yeah. And like three times you're like, Oh, it's done now, and then they, they keep going. Um it does feel kind of reminiscent of that. It also reminded me of I not that long ago watched uh another Ryan O'Neill vehicle, Bear Linden, the Stanley Kubrick movie. And both these movies have him sort of like picking a fist fight with someone and then being surprisingly good at beating them up i totally did not realize that was him wow um which i think might have just been a thing that ryan o'neill actually did i don't know i get the sense that he was a very sort of he's still alive but i get the sense that he's i don't know not not the most well liked from people that worked with him oh really wow he might be a bit of a a bit of a rascal himself i i do like this movie's overall other than the fact that it, it introduces a lot of this sort of like ugliness of the time and doesn't do anything with it yeah um i do like a lot of its portrayal of early filmmaking in that it is it's like a bunch of ragtag people like in the middle of a desert just being like ah i don't know what we're doing i guess like do a thing in front of the camera and we'll get it we'll make it work somehow yeah i like that um which i think still now like that's how i felt making movies with you in like people's backyards when we were teenagers mm-hmm. and that's still kind of how i feel like making movies is with a bit more professionalism right and i get the sense that that never really goes away like a lot of a lot of people who are far more successful uh and have done a lot more than i have have said the same thing of just sort of like that sense of just sort of like controlled chaos is sort of somewhat integral to the very process of it at least it it kind of should be that that feeling never really quite goes away of just sort of like I, I don't really know what we're doing but we're making something here that's really cool yeah i mean that was that was fun that was a fun aspect of it like the yeah. the the group of characters that we're following they are um and this is like really a really nice kind of period detail is that they are independent filmmakers who are being mm-hmm. pursued by uh the the people who own the patents uh yeah. to the, the patent to company the patent mob or whatever those like, patent company bastards 
so so there are like the big studios already at this point and then there are people Mm -hmm. who are like trying to use projectors and film and or or cameras and film on their own to make their own movies and distribute them by themselves outside of edison's trust and then they're you know these kind of recurring antagonists in the movie are these like uh uh, strapped hitmen uh with with who are trying to uh, find these clandestine film shoots and then uh, mess up the cameras. Well, that's that's how Burt Reynolds' character gets introduced to the rest of the crew is he's mm-hmm. sent by the patent company to shoot their camera, but he is kind of inept and doesn't really know how to shoot, so he misses. And then, then that leads to the extended fist fight with Ryan O'Neill. And then by the end of that, like, we're friends now. We just had a <laughs> fist fight. And then like, let's make pictures. <laughs> Cobb is the sort of the the producer who's sort of fast talking and he's the one who kind of gets everyone together this ragtag group um he says a lot of lines like where are my writers tell them how tough i am (laughs) and uh yeah that that kind of energy i think really pervades the whole thing and is is a lot of fun um there's uh a great bit where so ryan o'neill's character harrigan gets sent out to to california from uh, chicago to sort of help wrangle this film crew. And he gets there and he finds out the director has absconded with all the film and is just on a drunken bender somewhere. And we never find out what happens to him. Um, and so then the the camera guy, uh, the director of photography, as it were, is like, oh, you've got to direct it now. And he's like, no. And he's like, oh, any jerk can direct. You just tell people where to stand. Like, it's fine. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Um, which is a great uh summation of uh my 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 goals in life (laughs) would you Um, would you say that anybody can direct you just tell people where to stand i don't say anyone can direct you just tell people where to stand but i think it is especially when you're actually on set it is at times a uh if everything is going well it's usually just kind of sitting there and being like good good job everyone it's only really when like things are not going well that you're like oh shit i really have to get to work um uh, I mean, and pre-production is a whole thing that's like, you know, you got you to gotta do all the work then. Um, there's a, a, a thing that I don't know if this is actually true or not, but it made me laugh where the crew says, oh, at the end, when they're explaining to him what directing is, they're like, oh, you say action, and they do some stuff, and then you, self, you say cut. Or D.W. Griffith says cease. And I just immediately thought, of course he fucking would. <laughs> uh, cease! I know, cease, I know. Cease your actions. He. This um, is all very important and serious. Yeah, like, the, like there's this thing, you know, like D.W. Griffith is this kind of like, um, I don't know, figure that is in the background of this movie of like these characters are always comparing themselves to the great D.W. Griffith, mm. um, or you know they get in they get into trouble or something and they say who who are you and it's like oh i'm dw griffith you know yeah (laughs) Yeah, and so like like they want to make a movie as great as griffith they kind of like envy him and so this director he's like uh uh the normal thing to do is say is to say cut but when pretentious dw griffith says cease um you know he he says cut uh cease you know (laughs) yeah but see that was the sort of thing where like early on they're doing that i'm like okay so this movie has some seemingly has some idea of like D.W. Griffith as this sort of like pretentious, maybe overly inflated figure. And then the ending of the movie, I feel like totally doesn't 
again doesn't do anything with that it's just sort of like yeah he is he's great and it's like no hang on i mean the movie ends with uh this kind of screening of the clansmen the, the right bef- before, before they change the title birth yeah. of a nation and everyone is just stunned they're amazed they their jaws are on the floor they've never seen a better movie and and they say no one will ever make a better movie <laughs> Mm. um and it's i guess you know it's how much of that is what the characters are saying versus what the film is saying or like the i think intent it's what behind the film it. is saying i kind of do too and that's why i was like ooh, yeah. ooh. so yeah not not the best way to end the thing um there's also i mean like another thing that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth i guess is uh there's the repeated direction that that uh harrigan gives which is be natural which Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think you can necessarily fully i don't think that aliski came up with that phrase but it was sort of like her famous directing Uh, phrase right mm -hmm. like she had it written on the wall of the studio like that was her thing it was like be natural be natural and in this movie throughout the whole thing is like be natural be natural and it's like they never once mention aliski in this movie Oh, I didn't even think of that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so that was, it was like, oh, ugh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> there is reference to uh, uh, big hats, big women's hats. During um, the D.W. Griffith movie, somebody sits down with a big hat, which, yeah. which is yeah. a good, yeah, a um, good detail. Uh, even the idea of like a love triangle felt like a very, 19, that's a very 1910s, you know, plot trope, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, there's also there's a whole bit where right they go to they go to a Nickelodeon to see some movies and they realize that it's their movies that they've been making that have been recut, mm-hmm. um, which is an actual thing that happened all the time. Um, and so I like that thing of like they go to the movies just on, on a whim, and they're like, wait a minute, we made this, but like someone took it and recut it. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's not right. Um, and then they come out and they get mobbed by by fans and who start ripping their clothes off and they have to, have to run away. Yeah, and, and like notably, like they're just a bunch of people who are just goofing around and getting paid in the desert, right? Yeah. And they, they haven't even realized that there's this like celebrity culture developing mm-hmm. um, where and they're kind of like taken, like they're shocked that all of these people are like trying to like steal someone's bow tie to prove that they saw them, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's interesting just, like, all of the, like, small details about um, the era of filmmaking. And uh, a lot of this movie is based on testimony from people who, from a couple of people who were doing a lot of this stuff back in the day. They talked to mm-hmm. Peter Bogdanovich, and a lot of what happens in this movie are based on the stories that they told him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's a lot of really great details of that. Um, it's one of the few movies that I think does actually kind of portray portray this period of, of time in like pre Hollywood filmmaking kind of um, they do the thing where they have uh, like a bunch of sets all built in a row next to each other. And they're, mm-hmm. they're filming like four or five movies at the same time because it's silent. They can just roll cameras and have like four scenes happening simultaneously. That was a cool thing that is like, I'd seen pictures of it and like read about it, but to kind of see it dramatized, I thought was pretty cool. That also shows up in Babylon. Hmm. Um, 
for a, a whole chunk of it. I was reading about the making of this movie, and it does kind of seem like everyone who worked on it didn't really have a great time and didn't wasn't really happy with it. I don't necessarily know if that was because they didn't get along, but it was just sort of like I think it it uh, it seemingly sort of started out as a a bit more of a straightforward sort of drama and got kind of more comedic and satirical as it went along. Hmm. I think the original script wasn't nearly as as comedic. Um, I know that Peter Bogdanovich really wanted to shoot it in black and white because he felt like it needed like it needed to be for for it to work, and so he was upset that it was in color. There's uh, another cut of the movie that is in black and white that I guess it released after. It's um, pretty hard to find the the one DVD mm. that has the director's cut. It has a couple minutes of extra footage, and the movie's in black and white. Uh, that DVD is like ninety dollars and out of print. Um, <laughs> There were a couple of Bogdanovich like retrospectives that happened a few years ago where they played a DCP of the mm. um, of the director's cut, uh, but yeah, I don't really know what happened to it. Yeah. Not it's not easily accessible, at least it's not on Tubi. <laughs> it also is a cool uh, portrayal of film uh, exhibition where they show mm-hmm. movies being screened. And the projector room is full of smoke and people are shooting guns off behind the screen during the like, kind of gunfight. orchestral birth of a nation premiere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, that's a real thing that used to happen. I presumably with blanks, not bullets, but like that they would have like sound effects and things happening in the theater along with music. Like it wasn't just a guy at a piano or an organ. Like there was a, some movies had a whole production behind them of like to give it audio elements and and also at the nickelodeon where they saw um their other movies or or where they saw at the nickelodeon where they saw uh their kind of recut movie they didn't agree to um one kind of interesting thing that i saw was that before the movie started they had like a slideshow with lyrics where someone was Mm. playing Mm -hmm. the piano uh and then the and then they had like almost yeah, like a slide projector running uh, yeah. that that went from one slide to the other. The whole audience would participate in the music and sing along, uh, which was not something that I have seen depicted before. I'm mm-hmm. always, like, curious, and I need to do more research into this, of, like, what a program looked like at, a mm-hmm. movie, at like, a theater at this time. Like, I know there were newsreels, and there were shorts, and there were features... Uh, and I know that oftentimes things looped. They would just play mm-hmm. the same thing over and over again. So you'd sit down at any time and then just watch from there. And then it would catch back up again. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the actual structure of it, I'm not like 100% sure. And this was an interesting like inclusion of that. that I'd, I'd never seen that before. But it kind of makes mm-hmm. sense for the time, right? People yeah. are getting ready for the movie. They put a song on. They've got somebody playing music. They put a song on, you know? Yeah. It's a hymn for the cinema <laughs> <laughs> overall i i enjoyed this movie i think it it's overall an entertaining kind of look at like this very scrappy like early period of filmmaking but yeah i uh i didn't love it yeah i also didn't love forgotten silver oh yeah i, I like forgotten silver it was uh so this is the other movie the third movie that we saw um it was directed by peter jackson and uh, costa boats botes uh, 
so it's it's a fake documentary about mm-hmm. a non-existent silent era film director from New Zealand. Peter Jackson directed uh, the kind of like in-universe fake footage from this mm-hmm. uh, director, and then Peter Co- Costa, you said. Uh, no, Costa Boats, Boats or Botas? I'm not Peter, sure. Peter Jackson, Costa Botas, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, directed the kind of, like, interview footage yeah. uh, that they uh, spliced into this. Talking Heads interview footage. Uh, Costa Boats is a, uh, another, he's primarily a documentary filmmaker, but he's he's also done narrative stuff. Um, and yeah, they kind of split up the those two sections of the movie. And I, I I enjoyed this movie. I think it's 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 very kind of silly and just like it doesn't necessarily amount too much, but it it I, felt like <laughs> an episode of documentary now to me, kind of. I see. Yeah. Okay. I could I could dig that. I mean, like I I feel like um, so this is credited as like a comedy mockumentary at least online, mm-hmm. you know, and like what it was was more of a War of the World style hoax. Where they mm-hmm. pl- they yeah. this was a TV movie they played on TV, it was it's formally uh, almost like the aesthetic of like the films that were put on in my anthropology classes in <laughs> in college you know t- things things made by the BBC in the nineties or something like that mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's about something that's completely fake and I think that interesting interestingly. Um, it is uh, not absurd enough that it's like completely obvious that it's fake. Like it's like somewhat yeah. absurd, right? Yeah. But like it's all like hypothetically believable. If somebody respectable mm-hmm. is telling you this, you're like, oh, okay, you know that yeah. that checks out, right? <laughs> um, and so it's this made up history, this made up biography of this guy, this New Zealander who actually like invented sync sound and invented color uh and filmed uh a flight uh like a like a manned flight yeah before anyone else knew about it yeah you know? it was like it was like two months before the wright brothers or something like that and then all, all this footage had been lost and that peter jackson had found it in like uh, a, a basement somewhere yeah I, I i enjoyed it but i i i kind of left it thinking like i don't understand what the point is and i didn't <laughs> think it was like I didn't. I didn't think it was like funny enough to <laughs> to, yeah. to justify I mean, its existence. Maybe I think even though yeah, even though it's all made up, you know, even though it's all fictional, I do think it it's kind of a nice like summary of early film history in that it's sort of like, what if this other thing had happened? Like they do cover sort of like invention of sync sound and like film emulsion and like even sort of like uh like hidden camera comedy stuff like they sort of have all these things like he actually invented all this stuff like way before anyone else but i think even though yeah all that stuff is made up it does end up being kind of two things that i I thought i like got out of it which were interesting were even though it's all made up it does still sort of act as a kind of interesting summary of early film history the other thing is this idea that like at any point we can find an old moldy box full of film cans and they might completely change what we know about, about early film because like so much stuff is lost and so much of what we know about this stuff is just based on what we have to look at about it. Um, 
and the idea that like there could be a box of film sitting somewhere that is just this gold mine this this thing of just yeah. like completely changes our idea of history and of the art of thing you know it's like all this stuff it's grappling with the idea that so much of film history is lost and it's yes. using it's using our understanding of that to trick people <laughs> yeah um i don't really know how much i i get that yeah it was sort of aired on tv as a sort of like this is this is like a real hidden thing you know but um definitely knowing that it's fake watching it you're like yeah this is very silly it was it was played on tv in a segment that didn't usually play like fake things they played right they did plays they did um documentaries and there were a lot of people who wrote in to the tv station uh some of them were pleased with it they thought they thought it was entertaining and some were kind of upset uh there was a guy uh so peter jackson and uh uh boats uh they were um they had to go on tv the day afterward and tell everyone that it was fake uh because much like much like we're the worlds right yeah 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 someone wrote in and said if as claimed in your front page story of October 30, the Richard Pierce segment and much of the rest of Sunday night's TV one documentary on the Colin McKenzie film collection was a spoof heads should roll in television, New Zealand. Uh, there was no suggestion whatsoever that the film was not true. The viewing public, I'm going to stop doing this. The viewing public has been cruelly deceived. Uh, I'm a little too buzzed on, on, um, that good Coppola wine. Francis Ford Coppola wine to do a proper New Zealand accent. <laughs> <laughs> There's some kind of funny, like, foreshadowing, I guess, of later Peter Jackson things. I mean, just the idea of, like, early film history kind of shows up in King Kong. Um, hmm. He does some kind of staged World War One footage, which... He, he loves World War One. Yeah, he loves World War One. He made a whole actual documentary about it, which is really good. Um... Or maybe it's fake and we just haven't found out. Oh, yet. <laughs> uh, the actor Thomas Robbins, who plays Colin McKenzie, who's this fictional New Zealand filmmaker, went on to appear as uh, Smeagol's cousin Deagle in mm-hmm. Return of the King, as well as uh, he was also in King Kong and the Hobbit. And then uh, uh, Costa Boats uh, shot a lot of the behind the scenes stuff for Lord of the Rings. It does seem like a very kind of a relatively light thing that Peter Jackson made in between other like bigger projects. Mm -hmm. And they're definitely having like a lot of fun with this. They're being really tricky. They're, they're, they're uh, in character in a way as like the, the version of Peter Jackson that is discovering all of this footage. Um, And for 95, uh, I think that they did a lot of good for, for like a 1995 TV movie. You know, I Mm -hmm. think they did like a lot of really good effects work to sell this old footage being what it was right yeah a lot of the uh a lot of the fashion and the makeup and the acting of the time uh in their kind of fake uh era appropriate film clips uh was really well done and in particular the degradation on the film Mm. was really well done they had Mm -hmm. this kind of like fake um like nitrate decomposition on their on their film that i thought looked really really good yeah uh, and there were some like images that were i don't know like how much they were like real or how much they were like windows 
like windows 95 photoshopped you know <laughs> um but like the it looked quite good for like that yeah. era um and it was all this kind of like low res like video shot on video kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, so it, it kind of blurred a little bit of the yeah. um potential inadequacies it in, i mean in it knowing what i know about pure jackson i get the sense that he probably he, pro- he very likely shot all that footage on period cameras um like maybe even using like old film stock um and like mm. degrading it no like knowing how it gets degraded like degrading it on purpose but like knowing exactly how to do it properly so that it looks the same um and knowing that it's 95 and it's like probably not a lot of you know cg went into it like it was a thing then but it was very expensive and like you couldn't necessarily do stuff just on your laptop at home like you can now so yeah they're like the the craft of that stuff is very is pretty impeccable yeah i thought it was it was really well done and um um, it's a fun idea too uh like this uh like inserting a fake guy into history um Mm -hmm. and then like going over all the like big beats of uh of silent film history um yeah it almost felt kind of like post forest gump uh is one year after Forrest oh gump, yeah you know that's i hadn't thought of that another yeah, another movie that like you know it, yeah put put a fake yeah. guy into major historical <laughs> events <laughs> yeah um yeah there's a bunch of uh a bunch of kind of funny like uh, interview segments with different people uh sam neil is is interviewed talking about like new zealand film history and it's like oh sam neil's saying it. it must be true um there is uh a, a very poorly aged interview with harvey weinstein praising ddb griffith which is like a tesseract of terrible <laughs> men in film history it's just like jesus this is just like you know it's all it's all connecting in this one tiny thing. I'm just like, ugh, gross. Toward the end of the movie, something that I thought was interesting with the Weinstein stuff is that um, he makes a joke about recutting people's movies, which is yeah. like what everyone hated him. One of the many things people hated him for. Um, the the thing like, that people knew to hate him for then was that right. he was this guy that like sliced up other people's movies yeah. and and like bastardized them. And yeah, like Weinstein going like, oh yeah, we. T- I think he would like that we took his three-hour movie and cut it down to one hour. It's much better yeah. now. And it's know? like, oh my, yeah, that that genuinely actually kind of made me angry. That it's like, shut up. I mean, I don't we know if you maybe like doing you know and other worse things. If like the writers uh uh had him say that as like a jab at him, or or if. Yeah. Yeah, Harvey Weinstein actually like said that for, you know, yeah. of his own accord. That would also be funny if they like gave him like copy to write and he was just like, "Okay." And like did not realize that he is <laughs> telling on himself there. Um Yeah, I think it's funny that last for our last decade in review thing, we watched an actual documentary and like a a narrative film and for this one like, "No, we're just going to watch a fake documentary." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure there is something, but I'm not aware of any kind of like major documentaries about this era specifically. Yeah, I'm again, like, yeah, I'm sure there are. They exist, but yeah, I'm. I'm also not aware of any. So, hit us up in the comments. The like comments, and su- 
down below on the YouTube. Yeah. Uh, uh, rate and review. And in your review, tell us where to find documentaries about the 1910s. <laughs> I guess, like, the last stuff that I'll say about this is, like, you know, as we kind of touched on earlier, a lot of the, like, little details about early film, I think, are done really, really well here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are... Um, the, the fake director, Colin McKenzie, is making uh, a, a biblical epic um, mm-hmm. And I think, like, you can see it as a parallel to Intolerance and the Babylon from Intolerance, mm-hmm. um, or at least just other, like, Italian epics of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that the acting really, like, mimicked silent film acting in a really good way. Um, and just, yeah, all these, like, really tiny details that uh, came from a lot of research, for sure, and a lot of knowledge. Yeah. And a lot of love, too, I think. It's like... it. To, to skewer something this accurately, I feel like you have to really, like, enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you can tell that Peter Jackson loves this stuff to be able to put this much detail into it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always something I like about... When, whenever I see a sort of a satire of something that is coming from a place not of, of anger, but of just like, I love this thing. I want to make fun of it now. <laughs> well. Should we get to our... Top our, 10 our, of the decade. Our top 10s. Oh, oh, I'm very excited to do our top 10s. I don't know why. I'm just very <laughs> intrigued to see, like, what the differences between them are. Um, and to just, you know, run run back down memory lane. Yeah. Uh, because we have encountered such a long break, a lot of this stuff is a little distant from me. Same. Um, yeah. And so I picked my list mostly out of things that made, like, a lasting impression on me mm-hmm. um but i i think um even though there's some stuff that i might have missed uh i think that i can vouch heavily for all of the stuff on this list mm. i have a couple honorable mentions that i have written down i don't know if we want to go through those or not those those don't actually count so <laughs> i don't know sure if you want um so the ones that i i, I feel like deserve some sort of mention what did not make my list are uh, J'accuse, which I feel like was just very technically accomplished. I know you did not care for J'accuse. Um, <laughs> I was I was impressed with the the staging of that movie and sort of uh, even though some of yeah some of it, as we pointed out in that episode is kind of janky also. Uh, Parson Sue, which I'm very upset is missing. I think like the whole third act because I thought that movie was a lot of fun. Um, uh, Terry Vegan. Uh, I quite enjoyed. It's a good one. Uh, and A Dog's Life, which is probably my favorite of the like Chaplin films that we've seen so far. A lot of credit goes to the dog in that one. I mean, the dog is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Like, you put a cute dog in a movie, and it's, you know, it's just cheating at that point. Hmm. Glenn's favorite movie of all time is Air Buddies, uh, the <laughs> one where they go to space. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it. I got. I have to now. That sounds great. It's It's something like nine little dogs who are air buds children and they go to oh, space <laughs> incredible i do like how they're accurately being like well if a dog has children there's going to be nine of them our number our top tens counting down from number 10 i'm gonna throw my 10 out there because i okay. know this is going to be higher on your list and we can get to it later ghost okay. of slumber mountain 
Uh, not on my list. Not on your list. Wow, yeah. I felt I'm like... That, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it isn't on my list now looking at everything. I didn't even give it an honorable mention. Look at that. <laughs> How dare I, I? I, uh, I felt like I needed to um, get one of these O'Brien movies on here. Mm. Uh, his... Uh, there are a lot of pulpy fun. This one's got some fun dinosaurs. It's got some fun phrases that uh, should not... <laughs> that have aged very poorly, I suppose. Not in a racist way, but in a funny way. And uh, I, I I think that there's like a, a way that some people will like read things a lot of the time. Where uh, uh, if somebody's got some kind of like... Um, I don't know sexual hang-up uh a lot of the times like the, the it'll come out in their work i don't know if mm-hmm. that's true or not you know but like yeah ender's game very gay and this guy hates gay people right there you um go. the ghost of slumber mountain very gay <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what's going on with that but i i i enjoy it <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i guess i the the actual other than the dinosaur effects, which are incredible for the time, like it's yeah. it's still just like the fact that Willis O'Brien was so uh, he didn't invent stop motion, but he he really sort of like perfected a specific style of stop motion that mm-hmm. became became like the go to way of doing effects for many many years. Yeah, I mean, um, like Harryhausen follows in yeah. that in that yeah. I mean, Harryhausen Style. learned learned it from Willis O'Brien, hmm, like directly. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Uh, so that aspect of it, I think, is is really impressive and really cool. I think the rest of the movie, other than being like entertaining, I feel like as a as a whole, as a film, I didn't think that Beast of Slumber Mountain was like one of the best films that we watched. Fair even enough. though it, it has this thing in it that is like really super cool. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, That's me and... retroactively justifying why it's not on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I'm going to have to constantly justify that, like, I, uh, a lot of this is a little old to me. And so uh, I'm probably missing stuff that's important. And maybe there are better movies than this. But I think this one's a lot of fun. Yeah. What's your top uh, ten? What's your ten? My, my number ten was Cabiria, one of the mm-hmm. uh, Italian epics. Probably the best one we watched um it's visually very impressive it's not nearly as boring as a lot of the other ones that we watched the the hype for quo vadis i don't understand oh boy don't even <laughs> quo vadis was rough uh kabiria is like full of action and wild stunts and like crazy sets that's the one with the giant temple mm-hmm. both interior and exterior the set for that is stunning like yeah. To modern eyes, I'm still like, I can't believe someone built this. This is insane. It's like the Babylon sequences of Intolerance, which were directly modeled after mm-hmm. Kabiria. Yeah. Uh, plus, it's got like a little Conan the Barbarian in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot of like just people, sword and sandals fighting. And uh... yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like this, hopefully my list isn't just like, well, from a technical perspective. I thought it was uh, very impressive, but um, yeah, no, K- Kabiria, I, I thought worked on that, on on the level of just being like, what a picture! Look at this thing. Nice. Movies, yeah, I liked movies it a lot have too. the power to change the world. 
<laughs> and it, it is also one of those things, yeah, where, like, Intolerance gets so much praise and credit for it. it is Intolerance is very impressive to look at. I mean, good golly, the sets and that. It's but, ridiculous. Kabiria like, is, like, all the, just the good parts of Intolerance. <laughs> You know, it's like without any of the just overly dramatic stuff, it's like Kabiria is superly, super operatic and dramatic, but it's in a way that feels appropriate. It doesn't feel like, all right, yeah. dude, shut up. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that was a, that was a good one. And I would I would also agree that it's probably my favorite of the Italian epics that we saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Number nine. Uh, my number nine was the cheat. Ah, the cheat. Uh, which I was also not on my list. The first, um, uh, oh God, what's his name? I'm forgetting his name. I've had too much, I've had too much Coppola wine. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, yes. It was the first Cecil B. DeMille movie that we watched. Uh, and also I think my favorite that we watched. Mm. Um, this is a really, really well told, uh, kind of pulpy kind of lurid and dramatic story um i uh thoroughly enjoyed it i was really like surprised by it it felt um the drama felt uh and the storytelling like felt uh really ahead of their time i think Mm -hmm. yeah um i I, honestly like you know it came out the same year as birth of a nation and all the praise gets heaped on that movie but i think that for movies that came out in 1915 uh, the cheat feels more casually modern than mm-hmm. Birth of a Nation. Uh, it feels it feels more mature in the sense of like thoughtfulness, and not the sense of like boobies and violence. You know, it's like that's <laughs> that's what Birth of a Nation is there for. Yeah. Um, I feel like the cheat is a bit more of a sort of like certainly more restrained, but also I think yeah, a, a kind of smarter, not bigger. Kind yeah, of. but I, I w- it's restrained, you know, in a certain way. But I think it's also like a it's bit restrained of like pulpy for nineteen fifteen. You yeah. know, it is also very pulpy. It's true, um, and and fairly lurid. But yeah, I quite enjoyed that. There were some amazing shots in that movie. Uh, really cool compositions. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I liked it a lot. What's your yeah. number nine? My number nine is the doll, the Ernst Lubitsch weird horny robot movie. <laughs> I have not been able to stop telling people about this movie. <laughs> it's super fun. Like, like yeah, it, it's, and it's fun to talk about too, because it's, 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 it's a wild movie. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm telling people like, yeah, I'm watching silent films and I'm watching a movie. I saw a movie about a guy who is so powerfully gay that he has to, <laughs> uh, that he has to fake marry a sex robot to, <laughs> so that he can he can get his inheritance. You know? Yeah, and then a bunch of other weird stuff is also in the movie. Like, yeah, apart from that, there's the weird boy assistant who tries to kill himself over and over again. <laughs> um, there's like all the sort of goofy visual things of like the horse, the the horse costume and the winky moon and, um. It's a lot of good slapstick, a lot of great silent movie acting um, of just, like, funny facial expressions and things like that. Um, I think it's a good example of the types of silent film that you get when you don't just focus on early Hollywood or, like, early American movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, There's some silly stuff going on in Germany at the time. Oh, yeah. 
they needed to get their mind off of some things uh like a war ending um and yeah i thought that was also interesting too of looking at like the movies being made in germany and in france during the time and it's like a lot of the german movies are like we're not going to talk about the war that we're currently in whereas i feel like all the french movies like no we need to talk about the war though (laughs) um yeah fun movie recommend it i i love it eight for me um Mm. i wanted to include some shorts on here uh not just like focus too much on features and uh i put number eight for sinking of the lusitania Mm. um which animation um which was some of the most lavish animation that i've ever seen they spent a year and a half on this like i don't know what eight minute movie or something like that yeah um and i mean it shows like it's it's a really like somber adult dramatic animated quote-unquote documentary um Mm, it's a propaganda piece it's it's jingoistic in certain ways but the way that it shows like human suffering uh the way that it shows the, the 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 kind of like um very realistically rendered details of this uh, battleship or not not even not a battleship a like a passenger yeah. titanic very notably style. not a battleship <laughs> <laughs> yeah this this passenger titanic style ship being like exploded and lifeboats coming down and people jumping off the edges uh I, yeah it's some of the most amazing animation that i've ever seen and it's definitely mm. like the most amazing animation that we've seen so far yeah um and it's the thing too where i think it's it's animated on ones as they say like no frames are repeated it's like every frame of the animation is a frame that is unique yeah um and so that too is the thing that sort of like the streamlining of animation like we don't need to do we don't need to animate this every every frame you know and i think this is before i either they figured that out or maybe winsor mckay was also just too much of a overachiever to not do that yeah watching it is a bit sort of like all right like the the propaganda aspect of it is very 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 heavy-handed i think at the end there's just like a big title card that's like and they tell us not to hate the germans or something like that and it's like all right yeah <laughs> bring it down a little bit but it's you know it's it's old-timey but also it's like yeah a war had just started and there was this very real tragedy that had just happened and so it i think it, it is reflective of how people were feeling uh at the start of world war one for sure i'm less about the jingoism and more and and hawkishness and more about just yeah. like the the um impressive animation but yes i think that goes with a lot of movies from this time though it's like the movie is it, some of its morals a little little bit questionable but you know what <laughs> like it was fun um my number eight is straight shooting hmm. the uh john ford's first film not just not just earlier surviving, but like his first feature film, and it, it's it's wild to see someone kind of from the get. It's like yeah, he he had it like good at making westerns, right off the bat. <laughs> He's like the western he, guy. <laughs> yeah, um, real good at it. It turns out, um, even the first time going at it. Uh, I think we mentioned on that episode how uh, he was only given money and film. I think to make about half of the movie he wanted to. And he lied and said that he filmed half of it and then lied and said that his film fell in the river and he did more to redo what he'd just done 
but then he just shot the rest of the movie anyway um which is chad great. move <laughs> yeah I, it's it's a great story of the kind of like the weird scrappy con artistry of like early film yeah that I, st- I still also feel like is still an element in filmmaking now just sort of like uh just sneak into the building and like when no one's looking and film the thing like that i don't condone uh you know breaking any laws to get your movie made i don't think that that is the way to go about it i but, do <laughs> i i like how <laughs> filmmaking still has this kind of um i don't know this scrappy nature to it i keep saying scrappy but i can't think of a better adjective for it scooby like, there you go um of just you know grabbing what you can and sort of making what you making the best thing you can with what's available and mm-hmm. sort of maybe being a little a little sneaky about it too uh but i don't know this is, this is a it's a western i don't know what you it's it's such a it's such a quintessential western mm-hmm. right off the bat like it's um it's the sort of thing i didn't expect it to be nearly as fully formed of a sort of like example of the genre as it is because i feel like it's not by no means the first western but it is definitely one where it's it's really starting to kind of crystallize a lot of the a lot of the iconography and a lot of the kind of story beats that we expect from a mm-hmm. Western of like mm-hmm. the lone gunman who sort of like comes in to like help a family who's in trouble and like coming into a saloon with the swingy doors and like things that are just like very classic Western things. Yeah. John Ford was like that we're doing that. Um, which is why he's like, you know, the, the grandpappy of, of the genre basically um until the italians uh started messing yeah. with it <laughs> with that all that all that all the all those pasta westerns um all those all those rigatoni westerns <laughs> <laughs> those tortellini westerns those bow tie um, westerns um all right number seven uh my what number seven i hope that uh that uh, this is kosher because I'm lumping an entire cereal in together, and I, w- uh, I I'm gonna put vampires, les vampires, okay, as my as my number seven. I also consider that that's also on my list, and it is. I also put it as a. I didn't separate it into separate segments. It's like it's a singular thing, even though it's what ten hours long. Les vampires from Louis Fouillade, uh, is um his original work uh and i think that it's uh uh i have another one of his movies uh, a little higher up because i liked it better than les vampires uh but i still think that this is a lot of fun there's a lot of really cool imagery in it the storytelling in, in this kind of serialized way is a lot of fun um and uh it's it's iconic it's les vampires yeah uh, it's crime drama uh, edge of society uh, rogue reporter you gotta love it yeah it's <laughs> is it is very pulpy in like the purest sense of what pulp is mm-hmm. um it reminded me so much of batman and tintin and like old adventure stories and old crime noir stories and things mm-hmm. um yeah i love i love the vampires it's great and it, the vampires is definitely something that I I would recommend to people if they're like I want to watch more like silent movies. Yeah, go I beyond recommend. Chaplin. Right, because yeah, like the vampires is is not that at all. It's not a slap. There is slapstick in it. I mean, 
Mazamet is a great slapstick character. He's a goofy guy. <laughs> and Mazamet's son. Um, Eustache. Uh, but yeah, there, there's there's a lot to like about this one, for sure. Yeah. What's your number seven? My number seven is, you're going to laugh at me, is The Detective's Dog. Ah. Which was, it's also like a detective story, naturally. Yeah. It's like a crime, but then uh, he has a dog that has to save him in the end. You may yes. notice I'm I'm going real hard on the dog <laughs> stuff because I like dogs, but this was just such a delightful thing that I guess I I deemed it as a number seven worthy thing. Um, I mean it's got the dog, which of course is again is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Uh huh. But was um, it it does feel kind of like a proto lassie thing of like the uh the dog's gotta save the people now i've heard of mango lassie but proto lassie (laughs) oh boy i'm like even i'm struggling to justify how high on my ranking this is that's Um, fine that's fine it's a fun movie okay we can have fun detective he gets captured his dog has to come save him i loved it (laughs) i need to give that one another watch i like yeah that i remember that being a lot of fun uh number uh, six my number six is suspense <gasps> uh Lois spoilers Weber. same same ranking oh oh we're gonna my talk about six, our sixes my number six time. is also suspense nice so let's get into it uh amazing film from lois weber uh yeah. so yeah. such adventurous camera work uh mm-hmm. a really good sense of tension that she established in this movie um yeah uh, fantastic really yeah, yeah like groundbreaking film honestly yeah and it felt very uh confidently made you know it felt yeah. like there was real intent behind all the decisions all the very bold decisions that she made in making this movie um it's not it's it's the best example i think of a silent film genre that i don't love which is creepy guy breaks into a house while a woman is afraid um <laughs> but i think this is like the pinnacle of that sort of very small sub genre of silent film. I think it's, I did not see a better one than this. No. Yeah. Um, she had real, it. real genuine tension. And dare I say it suspense. <laughs> well titled, you know, back then they were like, what do we call this movie? What is it? Suspenseful. It's called suspense. No one's done that before. Lois Weber, uh, is, uh, pretty it's really impressive a really impressive filmmaker and mm-hmm. uh, we will be talking about her again mm. uh my number five is uh which we already talked about is the doll um mm-hmm. i thought that i should put one lubitsch movie on here and i wasn't sure about i don't want to be a man versus the doll but the doll is like it's so hooky you know mm-hmm. uh, yeah <laughs> being able to just say like yeah talk about the things that literally happen in this movie yes yeah, yeah is uh is worth uh is 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 worth yeah it's it's great to tell people about all that stuff yeah i i love like the the kind of fantastical elements of it too where it, mm-hmm. it is it does take place in a very heightened kind of like storybook yeah reality um and like the visuals of it are very heightened 
the the performances are very heightened um but like it all feels of a piece it all sort of mm-hmm. creates this this reality that is very playful and fun yeah uh what's your number five my number five was the pirates of 1920 which again is one that this this one was just pushing 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 all my buttons you know it's about (laughs) it's about sky pirates who have an airship and they're like captain sky uh they're trying to shoot down the airships uh because the pirates are like stealing boats out of the ocean it's great it's like big kind of like james bond like action adventure sci-fi stuff um i think that maybe was made i forget what year i think it was like 1912 1913 but it's set in 1920, and it's like, in the 1920s, the cops will have little hook arms that come out of balloons and grab people. And I'm like, you know what? Back then, I'm sure that seemed very plausible. Technology is just moving so fast, you know? Yeah. We're, we're um, going to all be riding around in wrong, Zeppelins. And I, I do love the idea that it, it's never going to happen because I think by this point, it's just not a thing. But everyone's like, in the future, we're all going to be flying around. And it's just like, no no we're not like <laughs> flying is too much trouble i mean we do we have airplanes right we, we travel we do do airplanes there are a lot of great sky pirate movies and yeah. uh sky pirates love them anyway number four number four uh so i'm i'm going a little goofy for this one again uh <laughs> but this one is one that again like it's hard to not talk about which is mm-hmm. for his son uh the for his son yeah, that one is not an intentional comedy. The only D.W. Griffith, the only the only way that D.W. Griffith is going to be anywhere close to notable on my list that I'm going to care about anything that he's mm-hmm. that he's done is um, this hilarious his, movie his, that he made. His anti-cocaine about, movie. Yeah, his, his hilarious anti-soda, anti-cocaine <laughs> Anti- movie. <laughs> yeah, specifically soda, which is my favorite thing about this movie, is that his son gets addicted to cocaine through soda, which, yeah. I mean, it was in Coca-Cola. But this was like, already outdated that, by the time that it came yeah, out. That, which makes it even funnier that yeah. it was like, DW, they don't do that anymore. They quickly realized that this was not a good thing. Classic misinformed reactionary DW Griffith. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, this movie's hilarious because it is. It's it's DW Griffith being still just as dramatic and and sort of like heavy in his sort of like this is very serious business. This is this is high drama. Yeah. And it's but, like my son drank that. too. My son drank too much soda. <laughs> Have you seen that uh, that clip of um, they um, <laughs> some meme clip of uh, uh, of of Trump going like Obama and then Biden goes soda. <laughs> <laughs> Obama soda. No. Uh, it's it's um it's it's very abstract, but it's 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 an enjoyable mm. thing to. It's an enjoyable meme. Is to, it a to is consume. it a is it a Vic Burger creation? It's that kind of deal. Yeah, I've been I've been watching a bunch of Vic Burger stuff lately, and it's it is both nightmarish and also very very funny. That is that's his aesthetic for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, that movie's very funny. Good pick. I I I approve. Oh, thank because you. It, thank you. I had forgotten about that movie, and you reminded <laughs> me of it, and it, and it brought me a lot of joy. Uh, my number four was the trust or the battles for money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a movie that i think we both agreed deserves to be remade 
who knows maybe i'll do that someday but uh this was a surprisingly like really well plotted little crime movie mm-hmm. i don't know if it was technically a feature i don't think it was i think it was about 20 something minutes long if i'm remembering correctly from months and months ago but it's got a secret hideout underneath a cliff mansion people it's wearing got masks. it's got invisible ink people wearing masks it's got like car chases it's like a, it's a really fun exciting crime movie um that also feels very uh i guess kind of couched in the time period it was made it's about like robber barons and this guy uh discovers the the sort of the chemical formula for synthetic rubber and but the all the all the the you know the the rubber magnates are like well we can't have this and so they're trying to like steal it and get the guy killed and they're sending assassins and like a private eye after him and then the private eye turns on him and helps them get away with it it's great spoilers but it's great <laughs> that's a fun one yeah that's a, that's a good one my number three uh is phantomas louis fouillard directed this he didn't write it and i think that because he based it on some novels i think it's a little tighter than vampires Mm. and i think this is a lot of fun there's a lot of this one is following the villain rather than following a a kind of um i don't know dopey uh, journalist as in (laughs) as in uh, vampires um and there are some there's some real good tension in this movie. It's got a lot of really fun Mission Impossible like uh, mm. uh, disguises. Um, the disguises are great. The thing, I mean, honestly, the thing that in Phantomas that that sticks with me the most is the guy who was the, stuck. The bell tower. The guy yeah. who's stuck inside on the 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 ringer of the of a bell of a church bell uh holding a sack of jewels but can't get down they ring the church bell and then blood and jewels rain down from from the church bell it's during amazing. the church service during the, it's amazing yeah. it's it's yeah. wild it's <laughs> it's so salacious it's so iconic i love it yeah i love it yeah phantomas um phantomas incredible my number three is the conquest of the pole mm-hmm. the uh not his last, I don't think, but the final one that we watched of George Méliès. And very impressive. Like, it has a lot of great Méliès stuff. Méliès was kind of out of the game fairly early in the 1910s. Um, but this was one of his last movies, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. It's got the, the Ice Giant, which is this giant, like, practical effect of like a big head and a big arm that comes out of the ground um all just like life you know big sets that sort of like move around and grab people and things like that it's kind of Um, melies at his like apex in a way Um, it is yeah i i think the two movies he made or two movies he made earlier i think you know are are a bit better i think trip to the moon and uh kingdom of the fairies are probably the top two for me Mm -hmm. but conquest of the pole is really impressive and a lot of fun and super it has all of the elements that you that people like about melies's movies of like just the the kind of anything goes attitude of just like no there's an ice giant and uh now they're in the north pole and like don't worry about it um and yeah just the the sets are gorgeous um the the 
it's there's an infectious sense of just like abundance of imagination and just like oh this is incredible like look at we look at what we can do yeah um so it was, especially uh, with that ice giant there's like a lot of a lot of budget being put into that you know yeah uh, the ice giant is just great to look at uh my number two getting close to the end here my number two uh is falling leaves Mm. uh it is a superb alice guy blachet film arguably maybe her most famous movie i don't know i'm not yeah in a way maybe yeah yeah um it is uh i was just stunned by how much this can like jerk the tears in 12 minutes you know yeah yeah. This is a movie about a little child who doesn't understand how how <laughs> doesn't understand the world fully yet, but knows that her sister is dying. Overhears the doctor uh, cuz it's becoming fall. Uh this doctor saying by the time the last leaf falls, then uh the, her her sister will be dead. Uh and so this adorable little child starts like gluing and taping the leaves back on the trees so that her <laughs> sister will stay alive it's it's very saccharine it's very sad but it's very good it's it's really well done it's, it um, is really well done yeah like i feel like describing that story it can maybe sound overly like saccharine or silly but it's like it really plays well i think um and it's it's very it's very artful it's very poetic it's like it is a great example of of drama done through silent film of like you don't need a lot of trappings i guess like it's like you said it's it's very short it gets in it gets out but it's like it it does a lot of emotional heavy lifting with with that time i mean i think that this is another type another one that you can show to people who uh you know have not seen much silent film and you can like you know you can show them a Keaton movie and they'll laugh and they'll think it's fun, but you can show them this and they'll be like, damn, yeah. you know, <laughs> damn son. Yeah. Where'd you find um, this? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, uh, again, like, I'm like, that should have been on my list, but it didn't. I didn't Tell us about it. your number twos, Glenn. My number two is the vampires. Les vampires. Les vampires. We, oui. um, I love the vamp. I love the vampires. It's super fun. I think, um, I guess this is kind of giving away what my number one is. I think, uh, I do think Phantomas is slightly better for the reasons you stated. Like it, it, it's, uh, it feels the writing in it is a lot tighter. Um, and, and like you say, it's like, we kind of, we're kind of following maybe a bit more competent characters. A lot of the time, I think the characters in the vampires are a little bit more bumbling, um that's also kind of the fun of it i think i actually like how chaotic this movie feels and how the villain the villain changes like every three episodes (laughs) or every three segments like yeah because they would like kill a character off or the actor would have to leave to go fight in world war one and they were like oh we need a new guy satanus you get in here um satanus whatever you say it um anyways there's a lot of it does kind of feel like just kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks, but a lot of it sticks and it, mm-hmm. there's an energy to that where it's just like ideas coming out of the ether and be like, Oh, let's do this now. Uh, let's go re- uh, train chase now. <laughs> um, 
that that I really liked. And and uh, um, Irma Vep is a great character. Um, the kind of consistent member of the yeah, vampires. Yeah, the, the most consistent villain through the whole thing. And even, yeah, even I like the bumbling detective who feels like he was written as a boy detective, but is played by an adult man, um, but is solving crimes in his in his jam jams and getting knocked <laughs> unconscious and thrown into a, a laundry basket, I think, once per episode. And uh, uh, great fun. A little preview. Our next episode is going to be discussing uh, the Oliver Assayas movie, Irma Vep, uh, the new his new Irma Vep HBO series, mm. and we'll be talking over the vampires again a little bit too. Yeah, naturally. Uh, so uh, look forward to that, and then we'll get to 1920, finally. <laughs> yeah. So my number one is Phantomas. Your number one is... Oh, do you have anything else to say about Phantomas? About about Phantomas? I mean, yeah, it's uh I mean, we've already talked about it, but yes, yeah, it it does feel it has all of the the yeah, the a lot of the wacky stuff from Le Vampires. I mean, it was made before and it's uh it's Louis Fillard sort of I think he'd already made crime films before this, but this is definitely him being like, "All right, I can really expand this out to being a big sweeping thing with lots of twists and and you know great set pieces there's like a whole bit where one of the detectives seemingly dies and then comes back later and you're like oh he was alive the whole time it's <laughs> like there's stuff that genuinely got me really yeah pumped and excited very through. early serialized storytelling too yeah really peak tv is what what phantom <laughs> is it's um, kind of the golden era of, of television yeah it's 19, um, 1913 yeah good just like really well made the the guy who plays phantomas has such a great face um and then has like like three disguises every episode also which is yeah awesome it's just like oh just cool shit happens in both of these so much that of course they're my two favorite things that we watched <laughs> like the louis fiat crime serial is just untouchable to we'll me. have to watch um judex judex yeah at some point uh, maybe it's just on our own time. My number one is Hypocrites. Oh. I thought that movie was fantastic. Uh, I think we kind of like focused in on Hypocrites for a second because it's Lois Weber, who we already kind mm-hmm. of respected. But I think the like kind of flashy thing to know about Hypocrites is that you know it's the first movie with like full frontal nudity in it, and it was like a it was like a whole big deal. She had to talk about how she's catholic and stuff to mm-hmm. and, and that the movie was an art piece uh to allow people to even watch it but that's not even the main thing of it like i think like that you know it's the headline grabbing aspect of hypocrites mm-hmm. but hypocrites is one of the most um i don't know it's one of the most like intellectually stimulating movies that we have seen the entire time it like that movie has stuff on its mind mm-hmm. and it is using filmic language to talk about it uh it is i i think that there's so much going on in hypocrites uh it's got so much to say about the state of religion about the state of uh what it is to be a good person uh about the the state of uh, about like the idea of martyrdom um mm-hmm. it is a really complex and fascinating movie and it's artful it's like an art film um yeah um and i think it's extremely well done and i i I, like i 
when I think about what is like a movie from this era that is art, like mm. I'm thinking of hypocrites. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like the, the nudity in it is not done to be like titillating. It's just like, no, it's like people are naked sometimes. Like it's, it's done for very, like the right reasons, you know? Yeah. Um, so that makes it also just kind of more annoying that people were like, oh, this can't be, this can't be shown to people in, in the Nickelodeons. <laughs> I also, I quite liked Hypocrites. I, I agree that it, 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 it feels like a movie with a lot on its mind and is, is really thoughtful about how it's putting that into images and how it's mm-hmm. pulling a story out of these different ideas. Um, my overall opinion, I guess, of Lois Weber was a bit, took a bit of a hit when I found out that she was into eugenics um, <laughs> and made a whole movie about that. And so I was like, oh, Lois, I, I had so much respect for you. But I, yeah, like uh, suspense and hypocrites are both just really impressive things where you're like oh this person has a very a very good sense of just how to how to put images together mm-hmm. uh in a, in a very thoughtful artistic way lois weber and yeah. louis fuyad keeping keeping our 19 aughts people uh as our as our tops of 19 was lois weber around the 19 aughts uh not really i don't think i guess, I don't. I guess not um but yeah, Fiat has been around for for a minute. I was trying um, to sum it up all nice, and then I donked it up. Yeah, I mean, we got this decade. We got you know the 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 last Melies movies. We got the the oldest surviving Elise Guy Blachet movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like it does kind of feel like, to some degree, in the end of like the first era almost of of filmmaking for sure. Yeah. Um. And now we're moving into the kind of golden era the kind of famous era yeah. of silent film yeah uh we're gonna be starting off with you know caligari and the golem yeah. um and like these are really you know i think in the night in 1919 i was really seeing just like the the inklings of this really like formalized film style everything mm-hmm. being really streamlined in the way that you kind of expect 1920s movies to be um yeah. and so I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot of that stuff I'm super excited to be getting to the 20s. Because, um, yeah, it's like I've seen a couple of 20s movies. Like, I've seen Caligari. I've seen Nosferatu. I've seen Metropolis. Like, a couple others. But that's about it. Like, I've seen a couple of the really famous ones, and that's it. Um, And so to be able to really go through and kind of see stuff develop uh, like this is going to be it's gonna be fun. Yeah. Also, it's a Caligari fun movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Haven't seen Golem yet, but Same. it's another um, it's another expressionist, German expressionist movie. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we, we saw even like familiar the, with first, the, director. the first sort of like slight inklings towards that in the 1910s of like mm-hmm. German films kind of being a bit more playful with reality and with set design and with, yeah, the, the just overall sense of of i guess expression yeah than uh than a lot of the the french or american films that we watched indeed um so there's lot a lot to look forward to, look fo- to. I was, yes those are the words that i was gonna say <laughs> yeah anything else to talk about in our in our summary of the, I don't know. Of um, the 1910s it's been fun 
I I really feel like I learned a lot, both about like filmmaking and film history, but like history in general. And about myself, I learned a there lot you about go. myself. Yeah, it's I, I really enjoy doing this. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, and I'm glad to get back into it uh, now that uh, now that you know we, we yeah it's possible that, again now that we can dedicate however many hours a week to to just watching old stuff. We're doing it for you, viewers. That's right. Uh, Be yeah. grateful. <laughs> no, we're uh, we're we're having a lot of fun, and I'm excited to get into the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s. Not so much the 50s or 60s. Hey, there's some good stuff in there. Then maybe the 70s, you. not the 80s. Maybe the not 90s. The 80s. Uh, what about what about Back to the Future? <laughs> what about what what about what about Roger Rabbit though? I'm just saying things. Uh, nothing that I say means anything. As I'll take a I'll, I'll take a final sip of my Francis Ford Coppola wine. Uh, Glenn, I'll see you next year. And by next year, I mean um, when we talk about Les Vampires and Irma Vep in the next Indeed. episode. Yes, I'll see you in. Uh, there's no good waves. I'll see you in the next episode.